Hi, and welcome to Contourcast. My name's Cat Boys, and I'm joined, as ever, with my glamorous core co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Oh, great. Um, we're, we planned to record this slightly earlier, but then we got distracted by the Dominic Cummings uh, press conference chat thing. Yeah, um, yeah, and I feel like a real. I feel like I was ripped off. Yeah, uh, I saw you slamming it. Uh, you know, being given the name Cumgate. Uh, honestly, <laughs> but, um, David. Honestly, David, there are people out there, serious, real people, who are using hashtag Cumgate, yeah. and I believe that that's an offence, right? Is I it, believe it. If you've not done a criminal act. And if you're the sort of person tweeting about Cumgate, then you're probably going to commit a criminal act. So let's just make a list now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and uh, I mean, there's a lot of people making much out of Dom and Cum uh, out there in, in Twitter. And I think some sort of like... What, like a dominatrix thing? I assume so, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that. It just, I mean, you know, Twitter's like, it's absolute film. Some journalists in Scotland, by the way, are actually writing up about for mainstream newspapers about how horny they are, uh, and uh, uh, and calling on Nicola Sturgeon to make a special provision for singletons and so on. Um, I mean, it's it's not John Knox's country anymore. Uh, Wait, what? Be... People uh, people are writing articles for newspapers about being corny. Yeah, in Scotland <laughs> of all places. In I mean, Scotland? I would expect it. In some some place decadent like California or something like that, but here in own country, or it's not like, or in like or in France, yeah, almost filthy countries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like sexy countries with sexy people. Do you know what I mean? Depends. Depends how you look at it. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I thought that the gate <laughs> thing had died a death, incidentally, but it appears not. It's very. It's so strange, man. Like I don't know what it tells us at this point about the decline of kind of democratic norms that this guy who I knew who he was before 2016 only because I'm that much of a politics nut and I read like character sketches about Michael Gove and stuff like that but if you didn't do that kind of thing you'd have no idea who he was up until 2016 quite possibly after 2016 because his legend only started to grow because people started to decide he was this kind of proto-fascist character who had caused Britain to vote against its own wishes mm. um, and now a few years later it's only a couple of years ago it was only the last year that that, uh, 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 that, that Cumberbatch portrayal of him on a Channel 4 oh, drama the, or, the original Cumgate <laughs> the original Cumgate <laughs> Um, and you know everyone lost their shit about that because you know they portrayed him as this kind of yeah this kind of revolutionary figure and all this kind of stuff. That was I mean, he's got that that, that kind of um, Rasputin quality to him, or at least that's how he is presented. And and both sides like that. The right like it, hmm. uh, yeah. and the liberals like it. And it also appeals to like we were talking about on the podcast where we discuss conspiracy theories, it appeals to mainstream attitudes about how history happens, both on the right and the left, yeah. which is the personal genius of a few great men. Yeah. Um, so, but no one had heard of, of him really until that point. That was about a couple of years ago. 
and uh, now he is delivering a speech to the nation, having uh, never been elected to anything, never been elected so much as, you know, treasurer of local PTA. He's now addressing the nation with bizarre details about his personal life, about how he made decisions about how to travel the length of England mm. and so on during the lockdown. Um, I mean, I think we should be careful about making a big deal of the fact that he's making an address to the nation having never been elected. Like, we are hmm. a nation of people who celebrate every year when an unelected lizard addresses us on Christmas Day. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, we're, we're used to, like, being spoken to or spoken at by the ruling class and to watch their dramas, like, unfold. Um, so I don't see that as, like, as part of the, the thing. What I find quite fascinating about it is that he's a backroom guy. He's not supposed to be given press conferences. Like the power of a, of a, a spin doctor or a political fixer is that they're the power behind the throne. You know, they're mm. not supposed to be the ones that are like out there in the cut and thrust. So I, I do think that this is damaging for him. Like I've seen some stuff on Twitter with people saying, oh, you know, it's shameful. He's been given a platform. He doesn't represent anyone. And it's like, I do, I think that this is, it's hard to come back from this because he has like MO is, you know, being the, the sneaky guy, like whispering in the prince's ear, like cartoonish almost. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's that saying about spenders that rule number one is don't become the story. Um, oh, yeah. And I always remember that. I always remember that bit in um, the thick of it, which I suppose is supposed <coughs> to portray. Alistair Campbell, but it could just as easily be someone like Colin Cummings. Uh, and, you know, they have an argument where uh, uh, he says, you know, someone says to him, you've become the story. And he says, I'm not the story, I'm not the story. I always remember that. Kind of, and that, that's the beginning of his end sort of thing. I, I don't know. I mean, he's he's been the story now consistently for a good period of time. Partly because, like, his, the enemies of, of Johnson and Brexit want to make him the story in the way as someone who has perverted the national capital towards this populist politics or whatever. But I don't, it's not really hurt Dominic Cummings up until now, as evidenced by the fact that the government won't let go of him. Like, he, he seems to have some kind of serious hold over the oh, operation yeah. at number 10. Um, my theory about this is it's hard to see how, because you, on one <clears> hand, you often think, what, they really can't find another guy to be rude to civil servants. Like, that, that's how invaluable it is. Yeah. I think that, I assume that what's going on internally in the Conservative Party is we forget that it's only six months or so ago that, well, seven or eight months by this point, that Boris Johnson launched an unprecedented action within the Conservative Party to sweep out its kind of liberal wing and, and mm. drag the party kicking and screaming in line with Brexit. Um, and when I say the party, I'm talking about the parliamentary party and the machine. I'm not talking about the mm. membership of any pro-Brexit. Mm. Um, now, I, I wonder what to what extent the Conservative Party is haunted by that situation and to what extent Dominic Cummings is now totemic of that operation. Presumably he was the figure, I mean, he came up with the idea of proroguing the parliament and that as a period to sort of settle the debts of, of the Conservative Party and so on. I wonder if he's totemic of 
the full stop that has been put at the end of decades of Tory infighting over Europe. And they're afraid to let go of them because they think that that will let, you know, all those evil spirits mm. reemerge. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the Conservatives certainly are afraid of the Labour Party. So perhaps their greatest point is still the Conservative Party. I mean, I think that you're right. I think Cummings is emblematic of the turn to like right populism of the Conservative Party. And I think that, you know, if I was in Boris Johnson's shoes, which clearly I'm not, but if I was in his shoes, I would be making a calculated decision about like in the long run, what's more damaging facing down this, um, like the breach of the stay at home rules or getting rid of someone who is completely emblematic of my political project. And I, I think he's obviously going to go with the former, like face it, we'll just face it down. Like we'll just have to like swallow a lot of shit and get through it but if i mean the the labor party is nowhere right i don't even think people know who keir starmer is to be honest right i don't think anybody really cares either and apart from the kind of the the liberal classes um so yeah i think that you would make that calculation that the opposition is nowhere and actually a lot of the battleground right now like coming out of the crisis is going to be inside the party so there was already that story um earlier this week when boris johnson told the 1922 committee that there won't be a public sector pay freeze after the, mm-hmm. the the coronavirus, like that's not going to happen, um, which I thought was really interesting to like show some of those like tensions that exist. Like he's not going to do austerity two point Yeah, I, so the the, the spectre looming in the background here is the public, so called, you know, but really the working class and and what and how long you can manage the crisis situation in the working class and how you do that best. And I dare say that the arguments within ruling class organisations like the Tory party are going to be sad uh, on those questions because no one really knows. No one really knows how to deal with the situation of this severity. On the, I mean, I think that um, in terms of the future of the kind of populist project in the Tory party, there's an interesting parallel to be done with Trump because Trump got rid of Steve Bannon quite quickly into his regime in, in 2017 uh, and he'd fallen out of favour before he was kicked out because he was after that Time magazine front cover that called him a kingmaker or something like that and Trump kind of bothered with this and, 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 and got rid of uh, Bannon who like Dominic Cummings I think in a sense like much too much is made of these people like if you I again I'm such a, a weirdo years ago I used to be Dominic Cummings blog um, and it's totally bizarre. Like, I mean, it, it, he's obviously a very intelligent person with a very creative mind, but his ideas are not really applicable. Um, he's not really as, as hard right as someone like Stanon is. He's more like, yeah. um, he just thinks everyone's an idiot. He just thinks everyone in the institutional life of the British state is an idiot and he can sort it out. But the thing is that Trump is the central character of the, of the Trumpism phenomenon. Boris Johnson is not a hegemonic character in sort of on the right of British politics in the same way. It's interesting that because that, he's too uh, he's too posh to be. He's too posh yeah, to I, occupy the the same space 
that that Trump does in America. Like Trump can run all that, like I'm a self-made man stuff. Johnson can't. Yeah, I think that the there is a real thing that Boris Johnson is like gaff prone and accident prone and slightly ridiculous and stuff. So I mean, Trump is as well, but it's in such a different way. It's it's with Trump, it's like his absurd masculinity doesn't come across that way. Do you know what I mean? It comes across as like a force of nature. It is the poshness that makes the difference, isn't it? Like yeah, Johnson's like it a is. caricature. Yeah, he's um, too much. Like Boris Johnson's too much, like a spitting image puppet. Whereas Trump is like, I mean, he's we've talked about this so many times, but like even his um, gaffes, like I mean, he just he doesn't care what the liberal media say about him. He just does not care at all. And I think that the lines are much more blurred in the UK than they are in the States. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Trump's just, he's very American and so brash. Like, I can't, there's sometimes where I can't stop thinking about Trump in front of that banquet of fast food. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who was he handing them out to soldiers or something? I th- yeah, it was, some, it was some people who were visiting the White House. Was it not like a sports team? I think it was a sports team that had come to like visit the White House and like he put on this amazing spread that had like all the McDonald's meals and Domino's pizzas and Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, like the best of American cuisine. Um, you, can, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't imagine Boris Johnson doing something like as audacious and tasteless as that. Like Donald Trump is very like nouveau riche. Mm. Mm. Uh, whereas to- Johnson is old money. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, there's that saying about Trump that one of the reasons he has a cross-class appeal is what he presents to the American middle and working classes. I'm rich the way you would be rich if you had my money. Do you know what I mean? I'm not like I don't go to the opera. <laughs> I would the- have like a sexy Russian wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> if if I if I was rich, right. Like, most people can, can, I mean, they can relate to it in a performative way. Like, the first thing that comes into your head of, like, if I won the lottery, right, it's big flash cars, sexy Eastern European wine, <laughs> mounds of cheeseburgers. I mean, not one. One's for losers. Get a whole table of cheeseburgers, you know. Yeah, he's uh, like, um, but, you, know, you know that, Ed, the, there was, like, a version of the Daffy Duck character, where it was like the really rich uncle. I can't remember what his name was. And he would like dive into the safe with the big pool of money. Uh-huh. Like yeah, that's what, that's what, that, is yeah. that kind of rich? Yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. I mean, it's that kind of stuff like, you know, people mock Trump's like he has a gold toilet bowl and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, like his apartments are all decked out in gold and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's like, it's like, people's view of what happens if, if a normal person got loads of money all of a sudden uh, and that's seen as somehow, because it's an achievement, it's less insidious than my money was passed down to me through five generations mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's apparent that the person who holds together the Trump project, I mean, Trump's a lonely person. Like he's mm. a lonely figure in the White House. He doesn't have anyone who's very close to him. And the person who drives the whole project and its public perception is him himself, and no one can disagree with him. Um, whereas Boris Johnson doesn't seem like the centre of his operation in government. 
he seems almost peripheral to it. He seems yeah. he's very indecisive. You know, he needs to be prompted to do things. I um, think that that's very telling. Like when you look at something like Trump's Twitter, like there's very rare occasions where I look at his Twitter timeline and think that's an intern. Yeah. Like Trump, Trump is he is tweeting. Like does the president uh, is tweeting? There was speculation. <laughs> the president is certainly tweeting. Uh, there was speculation shortly after he came into office. Like, oh, the white. I remember actually quite a lot of kind of liberal journalists in America like that. Huh, that the white aides will not allow this tweeting to continue, right? And you know, someone's going to come in and change up his Twitter, and, and you know, someone will do it and stuff like that. Uh, and it didn't happen because probably that try someone tried to do that, and Trump said, "No, it's my Twitter account. I'm going to keep using it." Um, and consider the difference between that. And the fact that we just saw watching Dominic Cummings' um, wee speech there, he didn't even tell Boris Johnson that he was leaving work. Didn't tell Boris Johnson that he was leaving. Um, and that one of the things that's going to obviously come out of this is, like, who's in charge? And some of that stuff is silly, because I don't really think that Dominic Cummings is, uh, you know, I mean, um, channeling Satan into number 10 or whatever. To me, it's more a story of like the evident weakness of Boris Johnson that, you know, he's not, he hasn't been informed. And indeed, uh, Dominic Cummings doesn't seem to have any superiors. He didn't tell anyone. He told no one he was leaving the government and just quit Mm. town, Uh, which, yeah, is is, is a really strange state of affairs. And what a contrast. I mean, it's one of those times when you get such an insight into like the lives of our best. He, he, hot, he made his own decision, didn't tell anyone, got in his car, drove his family up north to his parent farm, which has several houses. Uh, he was accused of wandering into some nearby woods. They were They're his, his woods. woods. Yeah. They're his woods. They're he his, owned woods. his woods. So he was, still, <laughs> um, he was still staying at home at that point, arguably, in his woods. Um, and it sounded to me like the property borders a river. So does he owe own parents own a section of river i'm not sure anyway they're the poor relations that's the poor side of his family uh his wife's family his stepdad owns a massive castle that you need to check out because it's one of these great english country estates um his wife comes from some kind of old old money like much wealthier than uh, donald cummings family and uh, she's the uh, commissioning editor of The Spectator, um, which is it's not a job. Um, so she's the, Speaking uh, as an editor, you should have said. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I said sort of like, yeah, that is basically my job, but uh, the the facts uh, aren't quite the same. But it was in The Spectator that um, people have been writing articles attacking Dominic Cummings as well. I kind of wonder what's going on there. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's just a bizarre world. He was so sorry that people were made angry by the media. Oh, yeah, uh, I love that. was a good little bit yeah. of spin. It was, I mean, yeah. it was so transparent, but it was good fun. Uh-huh. Uh, always love a wee ton like that. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm also kind of left, I, I'm tickled by it as, as a situation. I'm also left just staring at this kind of odd guy reading out a bizarre itinerary of what he's been up to for a few weeks, thinking, 
um, you know, is, is this uh, is this an important political development, or have I just been sucked into the spectacle now? Do you ever get that? You know, people talk about like hyper reality and stuff like that. Have I just been sucked into the spectacle? Am I am I somehow taken in by all this? You know, I mean, I'm trying not to become enthusiastic about any of this stuff. I'm trying to maintain a degree of distance from it. We're all guilty sometimes of getting very excited about this kind of politics. There's a sort of titillation about it. There's a sober effect. But, I mean, how much of this nonsense has gone on over the last few years? And how much of it actually turned out to be relevant? I'm all at sea in terms of predictions about how what, what consequences of this are going to be. I, because what tends to happen with these stories is either the fanfare around it is animated entirely by a bubble of about two, three to five percent of the population who are if politicals that. and who are obsessed, if that, and who are obsessed with it. And the rest of the country is paying no attention whatsoever and has no idea who Dominic Cummings, Dominic Cummings is. Uh, I have no idea how many people even know who this guy is. I don't suspect it's a very large number and whether or not it will pass them by, or it tends to do that, completely pass the country by, or for some reason, it catches like wildfire in a, in a larger part of the population because it speaks to a much more primal sense of what's going on in society. And it could feasibly do that. I mean, I think that it is powerful when people say, I didn't get to see my dad for the last time because I was obeying these instructions. I didn't get to see my child be born because I was obey, obeying these instructions. And that's not, these aren't unusual situations. Low, millions of people in this country probably have an elderly or vulnerable relative who they've not been visiting and it's been keeping them awake. So, you know, is, is that um, those grounds for a story that's taking on a huge, you know, representing a huge role to the government? I just don't know. You know, and it's, it's yet again that problem. If I don't know the distance between a small bubble of people who follow day-to-day events and much wider popular perceptions, which are hard to measure. Mm. We'll wait and see, I guess. Indeed, indeed. And whether or not something like this can pop up again in like another six months. You know, I mean, I just... Like, I think that we're we're so post scandal as a society. Like that, it, it doesn't. I think Johnson has made a astute political calculation that you know it's better. If this is painful and difficult. Get through it in the short term. There'll be so much happening that the story will eventually go away, rather than like damage his political project, which is a much longer term thing. Like I, that's that's how I see this uh, situation. But I mean. <clears throat> I'm sure more dumb stuff will happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hopefully, because, I mean, we've got nothing else to do in the core, so. <laughs> Another thing we were going to discuss was UBI. So this is James Foley's article on Conta about um, universal basic income. Um, I'm not sure that, that the argument is against universal basic income. For context, this has become a huge talking point, particularly on left-wing circles, about how the left should respond to the crisis. And it has a certain new relevance because of the large numbers of people out of work uh, at the moment and speculation that, you know, certain industries just aren't going to revive for the foreseeable, for example, tourism. 
Uh, large parts of the service sector will struggle terribly. Large parts of small business owners are almost certainly going to get be put out of work permanently. So the idea of a universal basic income that covers the entire population is paid to everyone and is enough to live on uh, has a certain new sales. Um, uh, James Foley's article is a kind of longer read which picks apart some of these ideas. Um, the main one is, I mean, I, I said the starting point is that there are so many proposals for a UBI, most of them fail on those criteria. It's either not universal or it's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's not basic. It's yeah, not so enough to meet basic needs. I mean, what I think is interesting about the UBI concept, like it's been around for a long time, but it's, you know, further up the discussion agenda. Um, I've heard it mentioned on BBC Radio a bunch of times already um, since the crisis hit and people found themselves unemployed, but also because of like the stimulus check approach in the United States. And I saw a tweet um, today that was talking about how, you know, people are like some pundits have been surprised that there hasn't been a big boost for like manufacturing or retail or in the car sector, because, you know, what if people spent the stimulus check on? And it's like, that's how out of touch a lot of people are. They assumed that people would get a stimulus check of what is it, $2,000? And then they would go like, buy a new car or whatever and it's like no people are paying their debt they're mm. paying their rent and they're buying food like that's mm-hmm. so a lot of the kind of like it will help stimulate the economy arguments like it's it's so low like the amount like it it just meets everyday needs like mm-hmm. at the poverty line um i think do you know what i mean like i think that's often forgotten i, I think on our um on a level of basic economics, before we get on to the, I mean, most of, most of James's article discusses the class political implications of it from mm-hmm. our sort of working yeah. class politics point of view and, and, and its sort of worthiness in that situation. But there are so many economic issues that it just doesn't cover. I agree with the general critique that I don't think, I think there are limits. You make an easy critique of sort of, uh, you know, relations with deficits and austerity economics and so on. I don't think it's particularly wise for the left just to imagine that there is a magic money tree. You know what I mean? Like there are, there are limits to that argument as well. Um, but also that a universal basic income, the assumption of many people who advocate it is that we're entering into uh, a, a period of economic development where there's going to be a long-term post-work condition for large parts of the existing workforce. Um, a basic income doesn't touch on so many parts of the economy. It doesn't, it doesn't understand the extent to which frivolous and luxury and consumer goods are now quite a large part of developed economies. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, in fact, in a period of relative economic stagnation. It's one of the features of, it was one of the features of the Great Depression, for example, that was uh, shortly before there was a huge spike in uh, con- uh, luxury consumption, which made up more and more of a share of uh, economic life because the genuinely productive parts of the economy were in crisis. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't understand some really basic 
realities of ocean of capitalist society. Um, but on that, I mean, my, 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 general, my general feeling about the way left-wing thought is panning out in this period, uh, sort of social democratic type thought or liberal economic thought is, um, by which I mean sort of liberal left economic thought, is there's a certain obsession with policy fixes. There's an idea that you can supply a number of kind of one-trip fixes to various areas of the economy. Well, I think that this is why UBI is synonymous with like the kind of Silicon Valley, Andrew Yang, like tech bro culture. Mm. Like it's very much like it's very much supported by a lot of those people from that background because it's a hack, right? It's like, you know, people see it as like a hack or, you know, a life hack. It's a way to like to kind of like skip what would need to be like a massive uh, redistribution of wealth and power and actually we can do the shortcut instead yeah yeah exactly and and i think the point james makes in the article is that it's easy to understand why ideas like that have become popular in the left where um uh working class agency has been undermined and people are starting to lose faith in the idea of p- political challenges and political organisation from below. So there's a, there's, a, a, there's a want to kind of marry public anger and public sentiment, which does actually support significant economic change with technical fixes that don't require any kind of mechanism in between those two things. The desire for economic change up here and the low level of polit- political organisation of subaltern layers um, down here. Mm. Um, but it's we know from very hard experience that when you try to implement change on that basis, you really have no control over it whatsoever. And so with a policy that like UBI, which is almost as popular in some parts of the neoliberal right as it is on the left, you know, you're setting yourself up for a potentially very dangerous situation. Yeah, but I think that this is why, like, an article that looks at, UBI in terms of class and class consciousness is so necessary because if you have like the gods of Silicon Valley advocating for this as a as a as a policy idea you know being like ideological cheerleaders of the concept of UBI like that's it's not because they're the kind of techno utopists it's because they're class conscious I mean, they have a degree of class consciousness and their version of UBI does not like actually have a sharp edge where there's like a, do you know what I mean? There's like a a radical, genuinely transformative potential um, because that class would be against that. It's against their interests. You know, mm-hmm. I, this is like, we've talked about this before on the pod as well. Like, this is partly why I find a lot of the um, kinder, gentler politics stuff, like, really frustrating. It's because it denies class consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, not just of, like, the working class, but also the ruling class. And you do, you do get people who argue, um, uh, who argue, for example, that if you had a UBI, uh, this could improve class consciousness and class organisation because um, people would be more willing to go on strike and stuff like that. To me, that has a very limited analytical value because I don't think it really understands the reasons why people don't engage more in in that kind of collective action. 
you know, it's not just at a time when people, working class people, when millions of working class people were much closer to the breadline, mm. strike action was much more common. That the prime problem in this situation is not that working class people are too poor and constantly on the verge of dying if they strike off work for a week. Um, although there are lots of people, as this crisis is revealed, who are in a very precarious position, have no savings and stuff like that. The situation is not as bad as it was, say, 80 years ago when Europe had some of its largest strike wave. Um, so that, that, uh, uh, the weird thing about it is it's a weirdly neoliberal response to that problem. We have a problem where there's a lack of collective class consciousness and organisation. How do we solve this problem? E monetize society even more. Throw even more private money pots at individuals. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Individualize that social relationship even more, and that will result somehow in, in more collectivized workplaces. There's no yeah, obvious I mean, kind of connection. I, 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 I like. I totally. I get that, and I think that it's important to say that neither you or I are critiquing this from like uh, from a sectarian point of view. Like, I don't want to just um, look at who is advocating for UBI on the the neoliberal right and say, or the neoliberal left for that matter, um, and say because they advocate for it, then it's a terrible idea. Like, I think it's important to unpick it and I think like, do you know what I mean like so everything that I think we're talking about in terms of UBI is in that do you know I mean that's the tone of it mm. um I mean the thing there is this like that hack element to it um which I think is understandable you know um for all the time that I've been involved in the left like it's successive defeat um followed by some more defeat and then if you've been really good then a little bit of defeat uh, for dessert um so i understand like why people are you know <laughs> frustrated and want to see some kind of solution um that's almost in a way like post-political mm. you know it's a it's a administrative or legislative solution that will like, shortcut to raising class consciousness but you're you're right like in what you're saying like there's no there's there's no reason that that would that would follow and actually i think that there's a real danger of ubi being like the end of collectivism do you know what i mean like it's the the ultimate privatization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this strikes me as true not just of ubi but of a lot of ideas some of which are associated so mnt modern monetary theory is another example of this not something i know a huge amount about but it's it has the exact same smell on it, you know what I mean? It's sort of, um, the, the problems the problems in the economy don't fundamentally relate to uh, social relationships between classes or something like that. It's all to do with sort of like money supply and, and you know, fiscal policy and, and, and all this kind of stuff and misunderstandings. As though, as though the enormous project of global austerity from 2010 onwards amounts to disagreements within economics, amounts to mm. misunderstandings by, by right-wing economists. Um, you know, certainly not. And I think, again, what's fascinating to, about this to me, though, is that I do think that this is part of a process of the decline and fragmentation of 
neoliberal orthodoxy. Some of us have been waiting for the death of the neoliberal orthodoxy for a long time. I suspect, of course, the reason that it's not dead is that it's not a debate. It's a, it's a power relationship between mm. different parts of society. So it's going to actually have to be broken to, to be overcome. But at the same time, the, what, that orthodoxy is now so badly damaged that um, there is a fragmentation away from some of its fundamental economic certainties, which is, I think, part of where ideas like MMT and UBI come from. On a certain level, I think something like MMT is kind of cranky, but it does land some punches on the economic orthodoxies that rule us. And it would be hard for any concerted effort not to do that at this point, a much harder task for neoliberals to continue to make sense of the current situation through their sort of present. So on that, on that basis, I, do, I, I kind of welcome these debates because it does show just how weakened neoliberal ideas have become. I mean, it, you, if you go into an economics department uh, today at a university and you want to become an economist and you're a young person, you don't want to become a neoliberal economist. And I'm not just saying that if you're coming from a middle-class background or a working-class background. If you go to Oxford or Cambridge and you're some partial, even if you're a Tory, you're probably not going in there thinking, you know, Hayek is where it's at. Some lose as well. But, uh, but by large, I don't think that's where ideas are heading in economics. You should have been at the Gramsci reading group this week. Because mm. this was the big debate. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, like, is neoliberalism truly in crisis or not? Interesting. I kind of wish yeah. I had seen that. Um, yeah, so maybe we should dedicate an episode to that. Maybe we yeah, could get I, one of our comrades from the uh, reading group along. That would be interesting. Um, mm. Because I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very split uh, myself on that, on that question. Um, when I was talking about like the, my concerns about UBI as like this like, death knell for collectivism, like I think that there has been um, like the, the power um, and fearsome nature of neoliberalism as a challenge for the left like the left's tendency to dismiss class agency as um as a as a real transformative power like i think that that's definitely the project of things like new labor has been dismissing class agency and you know i always think of blair's quote of uh, britain works best when unions and bosses work together or whatever like i'm paraphrasing mm. but that's the general point so like that tendency to write off class agency has meant that class agency where it exists kind of like pops out it's kind of like whack-a-mole um, so like you have the 2014 scottish referendum is like it becomes a pull of attraction for class politics or you have and the referendum on the EU kind of pops up. And these are like two huge um, like poles of attraction for class politics expressing the, the democratic deficit. Mm-hmm. And like UBI, like in certain contexts, I think can reinforce the, the tendency of the kind of more establishment left to downplay 
the working class as a like as a collective political subject as the makers of change instead like paying them off with an apolitical solution um and you know i mean creating a even deeper more embedded culture of consumer individualism like a passive individual consumerism so i think that there's there's really important points to be drawn out in this debate um yeah i'm glad to, i'm glad we're starting to publish things like that yeah uh, me too another thing that's coming up is this uh is the next in the quantum lecture series uh with jody dean uh i believe you're hosting it is that correct i am chairing it and i i'm not gonna lie i'm quite nervous about it yeah Mm-hmm. Um, so, have you have you read any of uh, Jordan's writings on uh, on comrades? Comrades, not allies. I think is the name of the lecture. So, I've read her book on the communist horizon, which mm. is great. Um, and I read her um, latest work, Comrade. Um, she also wrote uh, Crowds and Party. Mm-hmm. Um, what I like about Jodie Dean is she's she's taken some very like very unpopular concepts of like comrade, the party, capital T, capital mm-hmm. P, and communism, like these three kind of <clears throat> concepts that are seemingly outdated and have a very like sort of. S- a particular history to them that mm-hmm. you know people would sort of jerk back from like <clears throat> um in this kind of postmodern era um so like very representative of a grand narrative and what she is doing is she's um talking about their value for the left now so um was, i mean the way that she talks about uh the party as an important place for the organization of uh, left-wing people um, and how the party develops <clears throat> left-wing intellectuals. I mean, again, we're talking about this stuff a lot in our Gramsci reading group. Mm. Um, the, I mean, that's, I think that stuff's really important. Like having come of age in the left during a time of like real fetishization of horizontal structures of like flat structures a lot of um organizational forms brought in by like autonomists and anarchists like having experienced those types of organizations like there is nothing i want more than to be part of a huge ideologically powerful party yeah, yeah of <laughs> with I think like that... with bureaucracy and all of these things like i mean i would i always i know i'm romanticizing it a lot in my head but like romanticizing like the big communist parties of the like the the early 20th century i suppose mm-hmm. yeah uh and it's 
it's strange to me how unexamined some of those attitudes gone on the left over the last 20 years or so. I mean, people forget this is a, a long-lasting orthodoxy on the left now of the kind of anti-party, um, faintly kind of anti-ideological uh, sub-left. Like, people forget this has been the norm now for the life cycle of an average activist or something like that. And yet people constantly think it's new. People constantly mm. think that horizontalism is a new idea. It's been new for a quarter of a century. Yeah, well, um, she says, like, it transcends, like, the ideological divides, like, on the left. So there are, do you know what I mean? She references um, from, like, from Anthony Negri to Alan Badiou. Like, they disagree on lots, but they agree on one central concept, no party, no leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's just... Like, I just don't think that that works. I've, I've never, ever, ever seen it work. I mean, no. please roll up in our, our Twitter comments when we tweet this article or in the YouTube comments if people can give me like a genuine example of far-left organization, like which is not single-issue-based, that is <laughs> horizontalist in structure, that has managed to... like weather all the storms yeah even even survival and it hasn't it hasn't and it hasn't it clearly hasn't because the point of left-wing organizations isn't just to survive in this climate it's to actually make a challenge to have a confrontation with capital to have a confrontation with power and clearly i mean look at where we are like that's not happening and and what one of, the thing, one of the things behind Conta and the whole idea of doing this is that um, one of the saddest things about where the left has gotten into with these ideas and its general organisational atrophy is it's not even reproducing itself anymore. So the most basic function of any, of any movement of ideas and organisation is to recapitulate itself, you know, year on year on year. And what you increasingly find is that um, that basic kind of stuff isn't being done and that large numbers of people on the left are falling prey to enemy ideologies, frankly. So, like, it became clear, it's become clear in recent years the convergence between um, a certain strand of centrist liberal politics and large parts of the left and certain strands of postmodern influenced American identity politics and the left. That's become, it's become clear that we're essentially losing even our ideological hold <laughs> over um, the small forces that we, that we represent. Um, Sorry, I'm just realising that my washing machine is on in the background and that is 100% going to be in this recording, just FYI. It's unavoidable, I think, at this point. Yeah. Uh, but um, the, the, this thing about allies, this didn't really ever become a very big thing on, on the European left. It didn't someone else. It's more of a, an American problem. I respect Jodie Dean for putting on these arguments in the belly of the beast as well. The work that she's done on allyship. So the lecture on Thursday is called um, From Allies to Comrades. Um, <laughs> and it's like really about like going beyond identity politics although you know we haven't put that in the title because as soon as people see that it just like inflames our culture war debate that that's not what this is about instead she talks about um allyship 
as a well it's essentially like a part of neoliberalism and the you'll have seen these things i see them on twitter i see them on instagram um and in news articles like buzzfeed will do one every now and again refinery 29 will do one every now and again and it's all like how-to guides Mm -hmm. so how can you david jameson be a better ally because because of your privilege Mm -hmm. you need to um take on the oppression of other people who are less privileged than you but what that does like a core part of jody dean's argument is that what you are doing there like and it's not a moral judgment that she makes she says your confrontation therefore is with yourself your confrontation is with like your own mind rather than seeking it out a confrontation that requires a collective potential so that you can confront capital that you can confront systems of power so the concept of allyship is bound very heavily into how to cultivate in one's self how to decenter oneself how to like you know break down one's um system of privilege within oneself you know again it's this like privatization process and the allyship reflects a bigger structural and political problem which is like the kind of the shrinking of the political and the expansion of the personal or the the individualization and she compares that to to the concept of of comrade um so there's this she has this like incredible way of talking about allyship that doesn't set off like all these like debates about identity politics and instead she she looks at it as a symptom of how politics has been essentially displaced into individualistic self-help cali ideology like it's been displaced into that type of language and way of operating that then plays out through a kind of social media moralism of communicative capitalism like Mm -hmm. there's nothing that allyship does to build power instead we focus on the the small terrain of ourselves so she talks about like individuals like sovereign states each with their own particular uh, set of interests who you know guard those interests above all but will cooperate when there is a self-interest in cooperating Mm -hmm. what we have instead is comrades and she breaks down like why comrade like what does that mean what does uh, what's the effect of that and uh, I mean, it's a great read. Like, I don't want to just like, I don't want to spoil it all. Um, but you know, I do, I do love her work. Like, I find her really interesting. I really enjoy when someone's taking on like very unpopular concepts and trying to do something interesting with them. But you know, at the same time, oh God, can I just be dead honest? sometimes when i hear people on the left calling each other comrade like it makes me cringe of course it does of course it does 
I don't I mean like uh, actually see when I'm saying it right now like I can feel like my butt cheeks like squeezing together because I'm getting a cringe I hate mm. all that like kind of full lefty like fucking Stalin meme shit yeah it's the the most bizarre is if you've ever uh, tuned in to like uh, debates at a party conference and literally everyone is calling I'm each other comedy, uh, despite the fact that um, they all hate each other. Well, yeah, but also that I mean, I, I remember watching uh, Labour Party conferences like ten years ago where people are doing that, and everyone's a Blairite, and there's all these Blairites and soft lefties calling each other comrades, and it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah, uh, so Jodie Dean like uses a really broad definition. She's like people who are on the same side as you in the struggle. Um, she also talks about it as like it's not people that you necessarily like these mm. people aren't your friends like they might be your friends and your comrades but that's two different things um, and that you have to sometimes put aside your individual wants your individual needs your individual desires in order to win for the common good right and that's, a, that's an idea which fundamentally is attractive to me like I, yeah, I and, and that's what like big communist parties represented was the setting aside of one's sense of self or ego or whatever you want to call it to the side for a collective greater good that's what church did as well do you know what i mean that's what religion did for people this is but this is why that idea has fallen so hard out of favor because almost all of the discussion about um what happened to that model of politics is negative. Almost all of it is sometimes justifiably so. <clears throat> you know, even like, even a communist party that was relatively small, um, uh, like the Communist Party of Great Britain, it is true that its internal culture became ridiculous and bureaucratic and farcical and um, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and Obviously, the experience of the union plays into people's perceptions of the dangers of these kinds of organisations. But all of that stuff forgets. I get the feeling, for example, that Jody Dean's um, uh, work on this relates closely to uh, a book that, that has become very fashionable in America again called The Romance of American Communism, which is like a social history, and like mm. an oral history of the American communist experience, the experience of the American Communist Party where people talk about how they were motivated into politics by communist party. And I think that's an interesting discussion that is almost never had on the left today. What motivates activism? Because if it's not a sense of a large historical mission, a larger body of collective activity to which you are responsible on some level, I think what you're left with is a series of bad motivations. So, um, Guilt is a bad motivation to get involved in politics. If you're tempted to become left-wing because you feel like the world is suffering people and you're suffering less than them at large, you know, in general, that's a bad motivation and it will lead to bad ends. Like, I don't really think that the left is that much absorbed by white guilt or, you know what I mean, as, as, as some on the right would, would say. But, I, but to the extent that that's true, it's a bad motivation. And it, and it drives people in bad political directions. It, it drives people to do things like, it, it drives things like volunteerism, where you, you try to put yourself in the place of the oppressed, or you, know, you, 
I have something to talk about, like Narodism, where that preceded the Bolshevik experience in Russia. What radicals would do? They'd be middle class people who would travel from towns to live in the country where people were really suffering. You know what I mean? And there's there's still that kind of volunteer ethic uh, on the left. But there are lots of other bad reasons to get involved in politics with which we are now very experienced. Careerism. <laughs> Bad reason to get involved. I love how this has descended into reasons not reasons. to get involved in politics I, ever. I don't, don't get involved. With, like careerism, bad reason. Self-aggrandizement, bad reason. Because you're a demagogue, bad reason, right? But these are the only options you're left with. What's a healthy reason to be consistently involved in politics? The answer to that is frankly, and I think that people don't like this, I think there's two healthy ways to come into politics. One is that the circumstances of history have forced you into it, and that's something that occasionally happens, but which we don't really have uh, much control over. And the second is an abstract, intellectual, uh, moral in a sense, but some might say kind of like spiritual attachment to the idea of historical progress, to learn a just course for society and an unjust course and therefore subscribing to a historical analysis and a political analysis and a wider theoretical analysis that seeks to make sense of the world. People think that's dangerous. That's the thing. The postmodern era, people think that what I've just described is at best elitist or at worst absolutely dangerous and certain to result in genocide. This is the thing. This is the this is the contradiction in that that story is like that part of the a huge part of the blame for the fact that we um disrespect the like kind of the grand arc of history is because the left the left like took on all these like postmodern ideas because it was embarrassed by the soviet union and couldn't win the argument like, this is something else that Jodie Dean takes on full, like, mm. about, like, the Soviet Union. Like, do you think there's nothing to learn from that? Do you mm. think there's nothing, like, positive we can learn from the Soviet Union if people can sit here and say that they can learn things from the last, what, 300, 400 years of capitalism? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course we can, we can learn good things from the Soviet Union. And I, I like the way that she's pulling back like that curtain of, of shame and being like, hang on a minute, this is like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, one of my favorite left-wing phrases. Uh-huh. Um, wow. Well, phrases used by lefties that we mm. know. Um, but I think that the, the left has really, really bought into like a lot of postmodern ideas that this was like the end of like the, the grand narrative. It's all bedded into like an embarrassment about like the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what's happened is that we've completely disrespected like the idea of intergenerational solidarity, the idea that as generations we are connected inherently as a class. Like, mm. and that that binds us together so instead politics plays out through like this okay boomer right so like okay boomer is a good example of what i mean and i know it's a joke but like it's a it's a meme for a reason like it represents something which is like all the old dumb people like voting for brexit and stuff like that or voting no like and 
but rather than seeing like that there is like a intergenerational solidarity that is necessary in order for us to to, to progress forward but i i also i think even on a deep on a kind of intellectual level what are the consequences of disavowing your ancestors like it always this makes is, me think about like like what are the consequences for you, for you for your own sense of who you are and your place and time? Like it always yeah. reminds me of that that Christopher Lash thing. About, well, this is uh, what I'm getting at. Yeah, about the set loss of a sense of historical time. You no longer feel like you are part of a historical trajectory of which people were part a hundred years ago, and people will still be a part of that trajectory in a hundred years' time. The, what the, it what it does. That, like what I think it does to you, like psychologically, is it inflates your place. It inflates your place within this historical narrative rather mm. than seeing like your place within it as connected to the future and to the past. So you come from something and you're going in a direction and you have a personal responsibility to your ancestors and to your children to to fight for something better like i think of the there's this scene in um the hbo series of chernobyl which i don't know if you've watched that yet yeah you have so you know the bit where they are melting. yeah that's the best (laughs) so that's like every episode but there's this there's this part sorry folks for the spoilers but there's a part where after the explosion they need to so there's like the party bureaucrat and the scientist they come up with a plan but it turns out through their plan they're actually creating a potential thermal explosion so the party bureaucrat and the scientist need to go to the workers to say we need three volunteers to swim into this flooded basement of the nuclear power station and release these valves it can only be done by hand and it can only be done by you because you're the only people who know how to do it and the scientist is given like all of these like technical reasons about why it needs to happen do you know what i mean like, like he's like the ubi left or whatever <laughs> joke right you know what i mean he's the this is why this must happen very rational kind of explanation and then boris the party bureaucrat he stands up and he says something along the lines of um we are born from one thousand years of struggle and hardship and each generation must know its own suffering. And I'm like, okay, yes, sign me up. I'll go. Like, I'll go. Yeah, right? And yeah. then these three men put themselves forward for what is certain death. Because the, the, these words that this man says, okay, so I know it's a fiction. Don't at me. But the, the points that he is making, he's obviously scripted to be like a Communist Party bureaucrat. But there's a historical perspective there that these people will give their lives for because they're connected yeah. to the past and they're doing it for the future. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, perhaps more so the Soviet Union of the 1980s. I mean, Christopher Lash describes these processes as, as developing in the late 70s. But I still think that you have that there. Um, and let's acknowledge that that can be a very destructive force. Like, there's no need to sort of become anti to the extent that you just sort of ignore the kind of pragmatic reality of the world that we're facing. You know, it comes to 
uh, national destiny, for example, have obviously been put to destructive end historically, right? Um, but the idea that therefore any idea as big as that for Bolton uh, is ludicrous. It's also, by the way, given the scale of the challenges that now face humanity. If you look at the scale of like the ecological crisis, I was, I was watching um, Michael Moore's film, and he's the only one who produces yeah, all of it. The, yeah, you talked about this last week on the pod when you explained what carbon was. <laughs> um, that that film, like, I can't get away from the ending, right? Which a brilliant case is made for the rubbishness of the renewables industry. And then the film ends by, um, sorry for the spoiler, I mean, it's not like a dramatic point, but the, the documentary film ends with a long sequence of an orangutan like drowning in some mud, right? just thought, what a way to end the film, which is about the analytical problems that face humanity, face civilization, right? Human civilization faced this massive risk. And you didn't have anything to throw at us to get to motivate us to do anything about civilizational decline, except to throw us a muddy orangutan, right? And say, look at this, look at this shit, look at this orangutan, it's all fucked up and covered in mud, right? And I just thought, it's so lame. But it's also... That is how the left makes people. It doesn't say, it doesn't, it can't talk about generations, it can't talk about civilization, it can't talk about historical destinies or something like that. It just has to say, look at the nick of this shit. <laughs> this orangutan is really covered in mud. Aren't you ashamed? Aren't you ashamed about this filthy orangutan? I've made so much of this monkey now, and it's such a horrible scene. Anyone watching this film is going to think I'm such a savage. Today on this podcast, I laughed about people dying in Chernobyl and the fucking death of a lovely orangutan. And, and we've got like talking about national destiny and why people should never get involved in politics. This one might just get binned, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I blame the core. Let's just blame core brain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's what Donald or, Cummings is doing. Yeah. I've been here like an hour. I need to make some dinner. Okay. Um, so, uh, folks, we've got our Jody Dean lecture on Thursday. You can sign up for that. It's free. You can go to contour.co.uk and sign up there. Um, yeah. You got anything else? No, that's all. Um, I'm Any contourcast announcements? You're away to what? Uh, I'm going to make a steak bake. Gonna make I, don't, I don't know why I just had I just had to expose how degenerate uh, my my life is there. I just feel like eating a steak bake. I've got a frozen steak bake in the in the freezer. That's grim, man. I don't I don't know you could get them. I mean, I'm not going to eat them. You can um, just because animals and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You don't forget about that muddy orangutan. See the muddy orangutan. That'll put you off an orangutan bait for life. Uh, with yeah. that muddy orangutan. Uh, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop Jesus. recording now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>